But it's sort of been a long-standing concept that free expression comes with a lot of pros. You know, there's a lot of reasons why in our society we find it important to have a right to free expression. And sometimes that comes with a cacophony of horrible things. Howdy, everybody. I'm Corbin Grech. And I'm Kate Galliford. On today's episode of Retrospect, we talk with Lindsay Rank about the current situation with rising Gabelli senior Austin Top, who recently filed a lawsuit against Fordham for disciplinary action the university has taken against him for what he calls violation of his free speech. Kate and I also dig into this story a bit more and have a conversation about freedom of speech, harassment policies on college campuses, and our thoughts on the Austin Tong situation. This is Retrospect the official podcast of the Fordham Observer. We are now joined by Lindsay Rank, Program Officer and Lawyer from FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, an organization which has recently criticized the university for the disciplinary actions taken against student Austin Tong after two of his Instagram posts were found to be in violation of the university's bias and hate crimes regulations. Since Tong has described the disciplinary actions as attacks on his free speech and officially filed a lawsuit against the university on July 23rd. Lindsay, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, for sure. So before we get into the specifics of Austin Tong's case against Fordham, uh, can we get a little bit of information into what FIRE is, what it does as an organization, and a bit about your position and what you do at FIRE? Absolutely. Um, so FIRE is a national nonprofit, nonpartisan organization with, with a mission of upholding the free speech rights and civil liberties of college students and college faculty across the country. So we do a bunch of different work um, to serve that mission. Uh, in my position, the, the sort of big thing that we do is when um, colleges, both public colleges and private colleges that uh, promise free expression to students, when they take actions that curtail that, that right to free expression, we step in and um, advocate for students and faculty in those positions um, as third party advocates. So we don't necessarily represent um, students and faculty in those situations, although we do have a uh, litigation department that does that, but most of what we do is sort of a third party advocacy role, reminding colleges of their obligations under the First Amendment or under their own free speech promises, like in Fordham's case. So starting, we're going to get a little bit into the most recent controversy at Fordham with Austin Tong, um, but Fordham and FIRE do have a little bit of a history already. You authored the letter that was sent to Fordham, specifically our president, Father McShane, that describes FIRE's concerns about the actions taken against Austin Tong. And at the beginning of the letter, you talk a little bit about um, your, how the organization has criticized Fordham in the past. Can you give a little bit of context behind that history and FIRE's previous statements against the university and the history behind that? Yeah, uh, Fordham is a notoriously difficult actor when it comes to free expression. Uh, Fordham does have really strong free speech promises. So it promises that its students uh, will have the right to express their opinions and explore ideas without inhibition. 
Um, but we time and time again, fire hears about cases at Fordham where students and faculty are being, are being curtailed in that right. Um, this obviously is the most recent example of that, but another really notorious example is the situation with the um, pro-Palestine student group, which is also up, uh, it's, a, it's also the subject of a lawsuit right now. Um, that's a very similar lawsuit to Austin Tong's suit. Um, but I mean, um, Fordham has made FIRE's top 10 worst colleges for free speech list multiple times. Um, and I believe has a red light writing on our policy guide, which, um, which looks at not just do they promise free expression, but then do their other policies back up those promises? And in Fordham's case, the answer is not necessarily. So currently the university holds that Boston has violated their policies on bias and uh, threats and intimidation. The lawsuit filed by Austin claims that two Instagram posts he posted referring to David Dorn and the Tiananmen Square Massacre are what Fordham states violated these policies. Of course, it remains to be seen whether Fordham has other posts that they investigated or if their um, investigation into Tong otherwise turned up other things that they that led them to take their action. Uh, I think we could both agree that they need to provide that information in your letter, making that pretty clear too. Um, however, if the situation that Austin describes is true, can you describe the defense of the post you made in your letter? Yeah, so I think the problem here is that the, the documents that we have from Fordham that um, charging him with these, uh, these violations of conduct codes and then ultimately finding him responsible for those violations really square in on um, those two posts. So the one post about Tiananmen Square um, where he puts in the caption, don't tread on me, hashtag 1989-64 with the American flag and the Chinese flag. And then the second post, which is posted, I believe, the day before, where he criticizes the response to um, the death of David Dorn. Um, from our perspective, neither of these posts rises to the level of discriminatory harassment. Uh, neither rises to the level of a threat of violence. Uh, neither rises to the level of incitement to violence. These are the types, categories of free expression, or rather of expression, that we sort of generally think of as accepted from the general idea that expression is free. Um, so I think we talk about in our letter that these posts, while they are political and while they are per perhaps controversial and offensive to some people, they aren't what courts and what private entities have traditionally thought of as acceptable to remove from protection for free expression. So also in your letter, you acknowledge that Fordham's a private university. Um, so as a result, the First Amendment cannot serve as a basis for which student rights to speech ought to be accepted by the university. Rather you say, that Fordham has a moral obligation to protect the freedom of speech and may have a legal obligation on the basis of its own policies. Um, 
And throughout the letter, you make allusions to the First Amendment and various Supreme Court cases that establish what it means to protect the these types of speech and how they're protected. So what extent does the First Amendment, if at all, really play, um, comes into play rather, I mean, um, when it comes to the university's private policies as a private institution? And how much does it lend itself just to a moment versus a legal argument when it comes to um, the First Amendment? Yeah, it, it definitely gets super complicated when we're talking about a private college or a private university and these sort of notions of free expression and free speech. You know, at a public college, this is a much cleaner argument, right? Because it's very clear that a public college is a public actor, a government actor, and the First Amendment applies to them. When you're talking about a private university, although it gets complicated, our position is that when a private university makes promises of free expression, so when it has in its mission statement things about uh, protecting the right to explore ideas or protecting the right to express oneself, when it has in its uh, student handbook or student code of conduct similar commitments, we sort of expect that a university really ought to um, act in line with those commitments that it makes. Partially because, you know, students, when you're a prospective student and you're looking at different colleges, you might see that and go, oh, you know, this is a university that I'm interested in. And I know that if I go there, that they're going to respect my right to free expression, even though they don't necessarily have to, uh, based on the Constitution. And we see that here with, with Austin Tong in that he, he's told me that, um, that that was something that came into his consideration when he was deciding where to go to college. But students in general might take that into consideration. And when they choose a college based on policies like that, um, they, they should be able to expect that the college falls through. Um, so that's sort of, I guess, like the moral argument for that is that, you know, when you set up an expectation, you should follow through with that expectation. You know, I think we kind of all uh, see that in our everyday life. You know, when you tell your friend you're going to meet them for coffee at five, you should probably meet them for coffee at five and not just, you know, be a no-show. Um, when it comes to the legal question, we also take the position that uh, things like student codes of conduct and student handbooks are a contract. So it, it creates a contract between the students and the college. So when the university says, you know, we ask you to do XYZ, we ask you to pay tuition, we ask you to attend your classes, etc. It, it creates these responsibilities that students have um, in order to fulfill their education at that university. And the university says, in exchange, we're going to give you your degree, we're going to um, respect your right to free expression. That creates this sort of this binding contract between the students and the university. And legally, then, they are required to follow um, the commitments they've made in that sort of contractual relationship or pseudo-contractual relationship. Um, in, in New York, it's actually really interesting because you guys have Article 78, which um, allows judicial review of private agency decisions. So it... In, in some ways, this sort of um, 
this concept of a private university being required to follow its own commitments is enshrined in New York law. Um, and Fordham should know that because a court told them that a year ago or just, just in 2019. Um, so it, it's, it's more, it is a, a more complicated and more sort of complex argument or discussion when it comes to private universities. But in New York, it's actually a little bit cleaner than it is in some other states that don't have similar laws to Article 78. So just to kind of put it in a very succinct way, the basis of the legal argument is that by bringing Austin Tong up, um, by saying that he was in violation of Fordham's policies, the basis is that by doing that, um, Fordham violated their own policies. And so that's kind of, is that, what, is that how maybe you would describe it in a very succinct kind of straightforward yeah, way? I would, say, I would say that Fordham violated its own promises, its own commitments of free expression in punishing Austin for his expression. And maybe I should add that that the First Amendment plays, the reason that we rely so heavily on talking about the First Amendment and um, conceptions of what free speech looks like under the First Amendment is because that's that seems to be the most sort of commonly understood or or and the most robustly sort of thought out conception of what free expression looks like in the United States. So I think when most people think of free speech, they think of, oh, the First Amendment, this is what I can do constitutionally under the First Amendment. I mean, we see this all the time with people like on Facebook. Facebook's violating my right to, you know, free speech or my First Amendment rights. You know, people don't really always realize that the First Amendment doesn't apply, you know, right. to private institutions. Um, and so because of that, we sort of make this, this argument, or it's our position, that uh, the First Amendment is sort of a good, a good measure of what students are going to expect when you say, we commit to upholding your right to free speech. Students are going to see that commitment and say, oh, okay, so they're saying they're going to follow the First Amendment even though they don't have to. And that's why we sort of use that as our measuring stick, if you will. I think moving on a little bit from just the Tong situation in particular and focusing more on fire. So I was looking into the FIRE database and I learned that the organization considers Fordham to have a red light ranking for issues of free speech, which you alluded to before. So according to the website, what this means is that the institution has at least one policy that both clearly and substantially restricts freedom of speech. It also goes further and says that the rules that are being identified at the university infringe on speech that should be protected. So we're obviously making a moral argument there too. Um, can you explain a bit more about this ranking system and why Fordham has been characterized as anti-free speech just based on its rules? Yes, absolutely. So um, the question of what free speech should be protected, again, sort of goes back to our position that the best barometer for what free speech in our sort of United States culture should and should not be protected under a broad umbrella term of a commitment to free speech uh, goes back to the First Amendment and how the First Amendment has been interpreted. So generally speaking, the things that we identify as anti-free speech are things that if a public university had the same policy, that would be unconstitutional and they wouldn't be allowed to have that. Um, so that's sort of how we come up with those ratings. Um, generally speaking, a red light policy is one that is like really plainly 
um, would be unconstitutional if it was at a public college. A yellow light rating tends to be um, policies that could be applied in a constitutional way, but leave sort of room open where they could also be applied in what would be, again, if it was at a public university, an unconstitutional fashion. So they're maybe vague or overbroad um, and just not, they're, they're open to abuse, I guess, is the best way of putting a yellow light policy. And green light, of course, is great policies that we have no problem with and that we feel would be constitutional and not really open to much abuse as far as things that would be First Amendment protected at a public institution. Um, Fordham has a red light rating overall. And the way that this works is that if one policy is a red light policy, then we consider the entire university to receive a red light rating. Um, the red light policy at Fordham is the IT policy. And um, specifically, it prohibits using IT, including like student email to, uh, I think it includes to insult or embarrass another person on campus. And we, we, the words insult and embarrass are sort of really vague and, you know, open to interpretation. Like if I, you know, was mean to someone and called them stupid, you know, would that be, that would probably be insulting. Um, but is that, does that rise to the level really of something that should no longer be protected speech? Or is that just sort of people being mean to each other? Um, or even, even sometimes things that are not so like mean spirited, like I might, um, I might say, you know, Black Lives Matter and someone who is, you know, very conservative and disagrees with that might find that to be an insulting phrase, um, whether, you know, I agree with that or not. Um, so because things like insult and embarrass are just like so open to interpretation um, and don't follow the sort of more specific um, tests for what would be unprotected speech that we like to see. So something like harassment would be a totally fine thing to prescribe um, as long as you're following, you know, the specific standards that have been established by the courts. That kind of gets into where I would head with this next line of thinking. So to me, when I, maybe it's because I'm not a lawyer. So when I look at the FIRE website and I see that Fordham has a red light rating and I like look at the quote, to me, it says, using any IT resource or communications, including email or other means to intimidate, insult, embarrass, and harass others to interfere unreasonably with an individual's work, research, or educational performance, or to create a hostile or offensive or learning environment, working or learning environment. To me, that reads very similarly to like other harassment policies that would exist at other universities. Like for NYU, NYU has a yellow rating from fire, so still not like a green rating, which is the best, but NYU also has a non-discrimination and anti-harassment policy that says that harassing conduct that has the purpose or effect of unreasonably interfering with employees' work or performance or creates an intimidating, hostile, or offensive or an objectionable working environment. That's not allowed at NYU, but NYU has a yellow rating from fire. Can you kind of explain the difference there? Yeah, so I think it comes down to the language that's used. So in the NYU policy, which I don't have in front of me, but based on what you were just uh, reading to me, it sounds like the word that they they hone in on 
is harass. And harass has a very specific legal definition um, that, that requires um, severe and pervasive, objection, ob objectively offensive conduct that curtails someone's ability to access education generally. Um, so that's a very like specific definition. And you know, someone reading that may not realize that harass like has that sort of big baggage coming with it. Whereas a word like insult or embarrass in the Fordham policy don't have that sort of legal uh, definition, that context behind them to sort of curtail what, uh, what the policy is prescribing. So the rule is specifically about using IT resources or communication resources on campus. I guess it would just make sense to me that a university would be trying to um, prevent whatever like harassing or embarrassing content or like insulting content using their IT resources. So I just don't know, like, is that also not standard for the other universities? I mean, there's certainly universities that don't have this kind of policy. I mean, you can look at any green light or yellow light policy or university is not going to have a policy like this. Um, again, you know, it's our position that they can commit to free expression and also say you can't use our email to harass other people because harassment is not considered protected free expression. Um, but when you get into something like insults and embarrass, it's just so it is so ripe for abuse. And that, that's a big part of it too, is looking at who is determining what is embarrassing or what is insulting and who do we trust to sort of make those judgment calls. So when you, when you have, you know, an administrator who maybe disagrees with you politically or um, doesn't like you personally, or, you know, things like that, when you have words like insult and embarrass in there that don't have that sort of legal context, um, and are really open to interpretation, you really risk having that administrator have sort of this broad discretion to punish you for expression that maybe they wouldn't punish someone else. And we see this all the time, I'd like to note. A lot of the times these policies end up actually being used against uh, marginalized voices the most. So that's another big problem with these sort of vague overbroad policies that we see, like Fordham's IT policy. So I guess if we were to like get rid of this rule, right, should someone using like their Fordham email or something be allowed to send an email to another student or like staff calling them stupid or otherwise insult a member of the campus community? Should that be protected speech? So under the First Amendment and under what we would consider a sort of reasonable understanding of what free expression means in our culture, uh, calling someone stupid, being mean in a way that doesn't get to that sort of severe, pervasive, objectively offensive level that we would consider harassment. If it doesn't get to that level, then yes. But it's sort of been a long-standing concept that free expression comes with a lot of pros. You know, there's a lot of reasons why in our society we find it important to have a right to free expression. And sometimes that comes with a cacophony of horrible things but we've sort of decided as a society that those horrible things are are not are, are outweighed by the the good things that come 
with free expression, including, you know, the the curtailment of abuse by people in authority and other, you know, other sort of benefits that we have found to having a, a general right to free expression. Um, so to get a little bit deeper into the ranking system, Fordham's been placed twice on FIRE's top 10 worst colleges for uh, freedom of speech, once in 2017 and then again in 2018. Um, and we talked a little bit again about SJP, our club, uh, Students for Justice for Palestine, and the lawsuit involved with that, that happened last year and is ongoing, um, but that legal battle we all remember from last year. So can you talk a little bit about the system behind determining the, the 10 worst colleges? And is it as systematic as like red, yellow, green, where you do it on the basis of public universities and would that fly with public universities that um, are directly responsible to adhere to the First Amendment? Or is it more a case of high profile universities that have had a sort of memorable or egregious case when it comes to um, freedom of speech that would kind of make that top 10? Yeah, it's not it's not as systemic or objective as our um, sort of yellow light, red light, green light um, ranking system. Mm -hmm. It is. I, I wouldn't say that it's it's identifying like high profile colleges necessarily. I think it's much more sort of our subjective feeling based on um, doing this every single day. It's like at the end of the year. At the end of the year, a lot of us can go, oh my gosh, this was the case that really stuck out to me. So it, it tends to be it tends to be colleges where we saw a really egregious case that year, or we maybe saw a lot of cases from that one institution that year. Um, so that's that's generally uh, the situations in which a university or a college would make the top ten list is either they had like one or two really egregious situations or we just had like an onslaught of case submissions from that university over the course of that year. So I was looking at the top 10 list and one, one thing that stuck out to me from the one of the years that Fordham was on the list was that in 2017, another college on the list was California State University. The issue that was identified there was students were protesting a Ben Shapiro speech and it ended up that Ben Shapiro didn't end up speaking at the university because of problems with protests, like worry that they would create like a dangerous environment for Shapiro to go speak. One thing I'm kind of wondering about is, do you focus more on the university's rules that lead to like different speech curtailments? Or do you also, would you also say that the students shouldn't have protested and should have allowed Shapiro to speak on campus? Yeah, um, so our focus is on universities and colleges actions. So um, both their policies and what they have, you know, as their written commitments, but also their practices. So we see this is another way that the top 10 list sort of diverges and is different from the, the, the yellow light, red light, green light rating system, which is that the top 10 worst list is about practice. So what has the college done in practice over the last year versus the policy rating system is about what they have written down. Um, so we definitely have a focus on, like I said, the actions and the policies of colleges and universities. 
we we generally take the position that uh, in a free society, it is maybe unwise to ask for the censorship of another person based on your disagreement with their viewpoint. But we would never take the position that people shouldn't be allowed to protest or that they shouldn't have protested. You know, if you disagree with um, with something that's being taught at your university, or if you disagree with someone, you know, some event that's happening, you know, your right to counter speech is absolutely uh, integral to our system of civil liberties. And and we would we would always encourage students and others to exercise their right to free speech. Um, when it gets complicated is when the protest, the aim of the protest or the aim of the petition is to say this person should not have the right to free speech. So the, in those situations, we would support the right to protest. We would say you absolutely have the right to protest and to ask for, you know, someone to be censored. But we would also say that that's probably unwise that in our system of uh, civil liberties, that it, it, that we should be recognizing that while I have the right to counter protest, you also have the right to speak. Um, and we would rather see, I guess, if you want to put it in these terms, we would rather see protests of the content of the speech itself or of, you know, the speaker and things they've said or done in the past rather than protest with sort of the aim of censorship, if that makes any sense. So just as some concluding thoughts, I guess, um, to kind of tie it back in specifically to Austin in this case in particular, um, just thinking about this political moment of time, in time rather, um, and you know, Corbin and I are undergraduate students at Fordham. We have our personal opinions um, on the, the, the student question and the topic and um, I'm sure the majority of the Fordham community feels the same way and has taken a stance on it, um, doesn't, you know, on whichever side. But as a nonpartisan third party organization, how do you view the, or what can we anticipate from this lawsuit? And what are some of the greater legal implications for Fordham? We've talked a lot about their history with FIRE and with free speech. Um, do you view this, and does FIRE view, view this as a turning point for Fordham and its policies? Or is the political controversy that it's related to going to kind of blind us to that a little bit? How, how would you say that this case is maybe different from other issues that Fordham has had in the past? And um, yeah, just general feelings from yourself and FIRE as an institution on what this case means for Fordham and its community. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I mean, I think this political moment is really weird. It's really hard, you know, as a as a nonpartisan organization, we fire has a really diverse staff and it's it's a very strange in some ways time to be sort of in this position of taking a nonpartisan stand in favor of free speech no matter what the speech happens to be. Um it's, it's weird for all of us, for all of us across the political spectrum uh, for, you know, to be on one day defending, you know, a really 
a student's right to say something really racist and on the next day defending a student's right to take part in Black Lives Matter protests. Um, so that's sort of the position FIRE is in. Um, you know, I don't know what this is going to do for Fordham. I don't know if this is going to be a turning point for Fordham. Um, I think we all sort of hoped that the Students for Justice in Palestine case was going to be a turning point for Fordham. And especially once the, the trial court determined uh, that, it, that it had violated its own policies, I think we all hoped that Fordham would sort of recognize the, the error of its ways and work harder to comport its policies and practices with its commitment to free expression. But that didn't happen. And I don't, I don't know. I think we're just going to have to wait and see. You know, I don't know what's going to happen with um, if, if the Austin Tong case is going to change that analysis for Fordham. You know, I think we can all hope that uh, that Fordham that having two lawsuits within the matter of, you know, a couple of years on the same same basic issue will sort of awaken the administration's eyes to its need for policy and practice change. Um, but I think we're just going to have to wait and see and take it one step at a time um, and, you know, continue holding the university accountable to the best of our abilities. Thanks so much, Lindsay, for coming on the show. I think we had a good conversation about freedom of speech on campus. And I think we also had an interesting conversation on the ways that harassment policies can manifest across different private organizations, what that looks like across different universities, along with the more targeted conversation about the Austin Tong situation. So thanks so much. Yeah, absolutely. Again, thank you for having me. Hey everybody, on Retrospect today, we wanna to try something a little bit new and we're gonna take some time to try and reflect a bit on the interview we had. So yeah, let's get into it. Let's talk it out. Hi Corbin. Hey Kate, how's it going? <laughs> you know, I have a lot of appreciation for how complex the situation is and certainly how complex Lindsay's job is. Um, I personally would never be able to be so like absolute and like morally determined on like defending the First Amendment and free speech to like all lengths. So that was very interesting for me to hear her perspective. Yeah, I think one thing that was pretty clear from what she was saying is that she at least has a very um a very consistent view mm -hmm. on what should be what should be protected speech what isn't um and i think kind of like you i wouldn't go as far into like free speech absolutism and everything i think there's definitely a place for different anti-harassment policies which we can get into in a little bit but i definitely think that at the very least she's consistent so it'd be hard to it would be hard to criticize her on consistency. You would have to go with something else, right? Right, and you know, this is an important disclaimer to our listeners who never thought this about me, but I am not a lawyer. Um, I'm certain that she has a better grasp on the legal aspects than I do. Um, but again, something that we talked about a lot was like, 
Where does legality come into this? Where does morality come into this? What does it mean to bring the free speech into a private institution? So she was talking about legal and moral arguments separately. And so I'm happy to take a moral stance on something like this. You know, you and I are undergrads at Fordham. We have a pretty uh, insider perspective on the situation and what's going on with Austin Tong and Fordham and free speech. So yeah, I had respect for where she was coming from as like an outsider, nonpartisan perspective, but definitely some things where I feel differently from her. Um, and I think that a lot of Fordham students feel differently from her and concerns in this day and age, in this time, like she was talking about the contract that Fordham creates with Austin Tong and with other students, that they're gonna give you an education and protect your free speech and your right to self-expression in exchange for like money and you attending school and holding up your end of the contract. And then what sort of moral contract does Fordham have to their students of color and black students and keeping them safe and protecting them from harassment and what, I guess that's obviously what the case is going to come down to is, was it harassment or is it an infringement on his right to free speech? So I guess we'll see. Yeah, I think that's one thing that if we could bring her back on or talk to her again, after reflecting on the interview a bit, I would think that, um, so she made very clear that Fordham has these rules about freedom of speech and like makes promises about freedom of speech to students at Fordham, right? Mm -hmm. But I would also say it's like, well, by that same token, you could say that some students look at Fordham's anti-harassment policies and they think, okay, well, I'm going to go to this school and I understand if certain things like this happen, uh, certain things like I'm harassed on campus, people use IT resources to harass me, then Fordham will protect me. They will do mm -hmm. something to either sanction that student, make sure that doesn't happen, or there's at least some recourse I can use to right. um, have some sort of right against whatever that student is going to do to me. And obviously I'm not extending this to the Austin Tong situation. I'm just kind of talking more generally about right. the principle of like, what should Fordham be doing when you have to balance these different interests within their policies, right? So you have this free speech policy, but when do you have to balance that with Fordham's promises also to keep like their anti-harassment policy? And I think that's kind of a fair criticism to say some students may come to Fordham looking for that in the same way that they may come to Fordham looking for the free speech policy like Austin said he would. Right, yeah. Something that definitely struck me that Lindsay was saying was like the absolutism of protecting the First Amendment, like whether it aligns with your politics or not. Like um, a conservative student could interpret the phrase Black Lives Matter as offensive and say, well, they shouldn't be able to say that. And that's obviously something that most people don't want. Like personally, like obviously want Fordham students to be able to say Black Lives Matter without um, retribution from the university. And so I think it's definitely difficult to balance what an individual morally feels is right and what is technically correct. And I think Lindsay was talking about that. Um, I think even just comparing the Austin Tong situation to what was happening with SJP last year, like, and again, we're Lincoln Center students and I don't know how different that makes our perspective, maybe from faculty or from Rose Hill, 
don't even know where I'm going with this thought, but yeah, I, I don't know. I have a lot of concern about the way policies are evaluated. Like, I know on their website, Fordham sexual harassment policy is a yellow, meaning like, it's kind of iffy, like, I'm not too sure about it, like whether that infringes on free speech because there's certain phrasing, I don't have it pulled up, but on like- Fire's website? Yeah, on Fire's website. And so it's like, I don't know, difficult to see that and to understand what the boundaries are. Where it's like, who are we protecting from sexual harassment policies? Because oftentimes it's not the people who are harassed. And so, you know, she had a lot of criticisms of Fordham's approach to the situation and situations in the past, like SJP. And there are certainly criticisms that I agree with, but I think just because morally students, including myself, feel differently about the situation than SJP, we're more on the side of wanting to, pers again, personally, not speaking for the observer, for you, but, you know, wanting there to be consequences for what he posted, because I did interpret it as threatening to our BIPOC students. Um, and so I guess we'll see how it all turns out, but that's where I'm coming from. Yeah, and even as we were researching for this interview, too, you talk about the ranking system, right? The fire ranking system where some policies are given a red light, some are yellow, some are green. It just seems, it just seems a little bit inconsistent to me. Mm -hmm. And it seems like some of the policies that are red are just things that I would understand as being a university policy that they would have. Like, and to Lindsay's credit, right? she was consistent on how she answered the question. Like I asked like point blank, should somebody be allowed to use their Fordham email to insult and demean like another student or a professor? Mm -hmm. And then she said, yeah, they should be able to do that. And I think that's definitely like the free speech, like absolutist answer. I think that yeah. makes sense. But I also think like, I can understand the perspective of being like a private institution and saying, we're not going to have a policy like this because we want to make sure that if somebody uses our email or somebody uses other IT resources that we have, mm -hmm. um, we have some way to say, you're not allowed to de demean other people using that. And yeah. that's just a general acceptable use policy for us when we are talking about relationships that people are going to have through our different IT tools, they need to be professional and like more responsible than say your personal, whatever. And I think that's kind of a policy that makes sense. So that's kind of where I would just criticize fire a little bit and be like, you know, like I understand consistently like this free speech absolutist view, but I think that there's a need to balance that with other things and like reasonable concerns that people would have with that. Certainly, yeah just all of it boiling down to this essential question of was it harassment was it just Austin Tong exercising free speech in a way that didn't qualify harassment or was it a threat um and I know students of color interpret it as a threat and that to me is what I'm taking away from the situation and the voices I want to listen to and obviously that doesn't necessarily translate itself to a legal case um 
and I guess we'll see how that turns out, of course. But yeah, again, trying to balance the respect for what Lindsay was saying, what FIRE does as an organization, definitely respected, uh, respected their work with SJP last year. I'm glad that that case was in favor of SJP. I know it's an ongoing legal battle, but it's very complex stuff, which is like not a profound statement at all. To be like, the First Amendment is complex, <laughs> but it is, yeah. And it was interesting to hear you and her kind of go back and forth about the situation with Ben Shapiro on campus. Cause like that is something that sticks out to me too. It's like he has right to free speech as an individual but then students have rights to protest. And I wouldn't say that they were saying take away his like freedom to speak or his like right to speak freely. But what are, what are their rights to say, like get out of here. Like we don't want to hear you talk nonsense to us on our campus. Yeah, I thought, especially with things like that, you get to issues where, at least with the rules and stuff against like the university, right? If you're going mm -hmm. to criticize those rules you're at least saying these are specific rules that we can identify and we're not even going to focus on whether or not in practice these will limit expression or harm, harm students or anything like that. We're saying that the way the rule is written, this mm -hmm. will lead to curtailment of free speech, which I think that that makes sense and you can make consistent arguments about that. And I, mm -hmm. and it almost, it feels kind of inflammatory sometimes when you go on their website, it's like, top 10 worst colleges for free speech and then it's like number three or something in one of the years it's like harvard it's like yeah. harvard really the worst place for freedom of speech in like the united states and then going into that ben shapiro case it's i don't know what the prescription is for right. from fire to the california state university at los angeles so, right california state university said okay we're not going to have this shapiro speech their reasoning is like, well, you're, it's creating like this environment on campus that might be unsafe or whatever. Um, but would you have said that, and she didn't say this, right? She didn't say that um, California State University should have told the students not to protest. And she said that the students should be allowed to protest and instead they should focus on the content of what Shapiro is saying. However, I don't think it's my right, or I don't think FIRE would say it's California State University's right to curtail that protest. So I don't really know what the university would have had to do in that case to not end up on the worst colleges for free speech right. list. Like, what do you have to do at that point? It, because the actions you're criticizing are really sourced at the student body that's protesting. And in that case, you're criticizing people for protesting, right. which gets a little inconsistent and harder to work your way around, I guess. Mm -hmm. I'm interested to see where this is going to go. It's fascinating for me as a Fordham student to see Fordham come under fire and all these conservative news outlets. It's suddenly being like, harangued as this like liberal institution wants to silence Austin Tong because I don't I don't know that any of us would agree that's the typical Fordham experience is like this liberal institution that silences conservative voices um so it's interesting that this is all unfolding and Austin's getting a lot of publicity on major news outlets like Fox and OAN 
if OAN is a major news outlet, I don't know if it qualifies. Promoted by the president. Every yeah, single well, there day, you go. So, you know? The presidential seal of approval. I guess we'll see. But I hope, I mean, it's not that the matter is really in anyone anyone's hands now, but the laws, but I hope that it will be a little more in favor of our students of color, our black students, I should say specifically, because um, that was the community that really felt threatened by Austin's post. Because I think it would be discouraging for them to have taken this action when students really asked them to and then have it kind of explode in their faces. But again, obviously, I don't want there to be a precedent for like, like suppressing someone's free speech on campus. So I don't know. It's really not up to me, obviously, but I'm very fascinated to see how it all turns out. This has been Retrospect. Special thanks to Lindsay Rank for coming on the show and talking with us today. For more information on the Austin Tonk situation, make sure to check out our website, FordhamObserver.com. Also thanks to our producer, Jacqueline Pierce. I'm Corbin Gregg. And I'm Kate Galliford. Thanks for listening today. Stay safe and see some of you on campus soon. <laughs>